Welcome to MAP, the bi-weekly market access podcast provided by Mars Market Access and Pricing Strategy, which is your healthcare consultancy in the German-speaking markets. Mars makes it as easy as possible for you to get your pharmaceutical, medtech or digital health product to the market and of course get the price it deserves. My name is Stefan Walzer, I'm the founder of Mars and a health economist by training and working in the fields of market access, reimbursement, pricing and health economics already since 2004. Additionally, I founded the consultancy P&N Pricing and Negotiations in Healthcare based in Toronto, Canada, which supports companies and individuals globally by coaching, simulations and training, especially on negotiations. This service is including our innovative virtual reality simulation program and is part of the Negotiation Lab. And now let's learn about the market access and reimbursement systems around the globe. Market access planning obviously includes a lot of different items and activities to consider. Beyond, let's say, the kind of more well-known parts like thinking about the right pricing, putting the right process together, knowing the stakeholders is obviously as well, for example, planning for the submission and or already planning to include the payer's view into the clinical trial program. Sounds so easy. And sometimes it is, that depends sometimes obviously as well a bit on the processes within the companies. Anyhow, for today's episode, we have just picked out one special component of that, which is early advice from payers and payer organizations. We're, we're discussing a bit later on as well, more on the formal processes, meaning consultations with actual payer and payer organizations, but for sure, there are also other opportunities. For example, when you think about more kind of informal processes like an advisory board where you can put maybe payers or former payers, payer proxies together and let them discuss about different topics. Or also when you maybe get into individual discussions, either with a health insurance company with a representative of a healthcare system and or with individuals working in that field. Anyhow, let's focus again on what we will discuss in a couple of minutes with my two guests for that episode, which is more the early consultations with payers. As an example, we can take the early advice with the Joint Federal Committee with the GBA in Germany, where a company can submit a form with their kind of questions to the GBA. It's a template, what you can include there, it needs to be submitted in German with a couple of more administrative questions, so which company, which ingredient, a bit of reg uh, regulatory kind of background, not really a lot. And then you can basically dig into the questions you want to get an answer from the GBA. A lot of times, you'll hear that as well, in a couple of minutes, it is around comparators, subgroups, endpoints, but important here is also, it's not only raising the question, it's also putting your rationale down. And once that is basically done, you can submit it and the GBA gives you a time slot for a consultation. Currently, it's also advised that the time slot is probably booked even before the submission package is ready, as there's quite long waiting time in the meantime until you really have then that meeting. How does the meeting look like? Um, before COVID, 
you had face-to-face -face conversations with them, so meaning that there was a meeting in Berlin in with the GBA in their offices where normally three to five people from the GBA were in front of you. You can basically bring as well different people for sure, but I think advisable is also that you have, let's say, people close to the clinical trial program, um, close to regulatory and their kind of environments, and of course, around market access that you can really discuss the topics you want. Also important there, it's not really a discussion with the GBA, even though that I said it just recently, uh, it's rather getting the answers and the reply from the GBA, their position. And when you ask them questions, it's better to understand where and how they basically came up with their reply. But now let's move over to a more European approach and just discuss early advice in a European environment. And my guests today are on the one side, Estan Zenza. She is the CEO and founder of Decisive Consulting based in the UK, but she has had also a lot of different experiences in the industry for Alexion, for Novartis, for Roche, and also for Allegan. So a lot of really interesting kind of experience she can share with us. And on the other side, we have Nick Leach, He's a very experienced consultant. He spent probably most of his time in consultancy, but with having that experience, he has seen obviously a lot of different approaches from different industries. So looking forward also from his point of view, especially where ESTA is more focused on the European kind of approach and Nick is also focused a bit more on the UK approach. So we have a good discussion with myself from a German perspective, Nick from a UK perspective, and Esther can and will be covering the full European global view on that topic. Good, good morning, Esther and Nick. Today we are with me, three persons, and discussing about a real, I think, not only hot topic, but I think also a very important and interesting topic, which is this time around the market access preparation for Europe, but including UK HCA as well. Good morning. Good morning. Good to have you. So, I mean, as already said, I mean, I, I try to have a bit of, let's say, support for today uh, in order to also capture the UK, right? I mean, after Brexit, I think a lot of things have probably changed. We've seen that. But still, I mean, if we, for example, have let's say companies, um, especially maybe from the US, from Australia, from wherever, and they want to go to Europe, it's still a bit of the kind of question, right? How to approach the full continent, right? Europe is per se, not just, let's say one system. We know that, right? And then on top, you have as well, the kind of difficulty with the UK, even though that at least what we hear back from a couple of companies is that UK is a bit easier for them because they can at least read and listen um, to the language because they understand it, right? <laughs> no, very true, Stefan. Although, of course, the UNETA process throws this into new relief when we think about language and applicability. So I'm sure we'll come on to talk about that in terms of above country processes as well as the country specific processes. But as you mentioned, post Brexit, of course, the pan European HTA initiatives sadly don't include the UK. So we need to approach this in a new and creative way. Fully agree, fully agree. So, I mean, just generally, just to start maybe with the idea, I mean, if if we would maybe just go back to, let's say, company's view, um, and uh, we have a product and, and we're located in the US and we want to approach Europe, I mean, what are your thoughts? How, how should somebody basically start with, uh, let's say, going to Europe, especially obviously having a look and um, having a view on, uh, on the payers' mindset? I mean, what, what do you think, Nick? 
So I think the first thing to think about is that it's it's obviously it's challenging, isn't it, to um to develop clinical trial protocols that support access across multiple mm. countries. You've got diverse system requirements across the individual countries. And so I think one of the the chief benefits of early dialogue, scientific advice, whatever you want to call it, is it's an opportunity to get early feedback on your proposed evidence generation plan. I think that's probably one of the critical, the critical um, you know, points around why that's a good thing to do. You've got um an opportunity to get diverse stakeholder feedback. So um, not just from the payers, but also um, the advice processes, advice processes sorry, that are available in Europe include um, regulators and the stakeholders involved in them include clinicians and patients. So you really get a holistic view of the evidence requirements for those individual countries. Yeah, no, I know. I think that's a, that's a good point. I mean, still, I mean, if you know, if I'm a company you know, or I'm the CEO of a, co- of a company in, in the US and um, I mean, I, I listen maybe to that podcast and read here and there a couple of things and I know that early advice is probably important, but what is really the kind of next step? I mean, and especially probably, I mean, you you touched base already a bit on it, on it, right? I mean, with the benefits, but what is the kind of real benefit finally, quantitatively probably for me as a company? I think if we if we go back to first principles, it depends a lot on where a company is in their development journey. And that really drives the nature of advice that perhaps is most valuable. But if we take your example, Stefan, and we imagine that it's a company perhaps coming to the age of end of phase two, mm. really thinking about the design of their pivotal phase three program, then this is the moment when we can do great work to make sure that we're meeting the needs sufficiently of as many stakeholders as possible around the globe. And of course, historically, this process has been well established for regulators. So making sure that we understand well the different requirements of different geographies to ensure a label. But our path to access now is so much more complicated than a label. (laughs) So we need to now also engage the broad network of HTAs and payers worldwide to make sure that the evidence plans will also meet the requirements needed to ensure that a medicine can be paid for and that it is recognised within the system and the system in which it's going to be implemented as offering true value. Now, the complexity here is there's not one way of doing it. So with the regulators, there's a very typical and well-trodden path. I think analysis we did recently, Stefan, suggests that there's more than 50 different ways of engaging the plethora of different stakeholders (laughs) across Europe, um, Canada, Australia, et cetera, ex-US. So working out the question, the timing and who to approach for key advice is perhaps the first starting point for an organisation in the situation you describe. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I fully agree with you. I think, especially just the the enormous number of possible, uh, let's say, um, engagement uh, opportunities. I think is already a huge kind of issue, probably, especially when I'm more a kind of smaller company and just maybe approaching Europe or approaching, let's say, X US. If we take that as an example for the first time, fully agree. I think, um, interestingly, also, I think you had just touched base before we're coming a bit on the process maybe, and just take maybe some of those 50 as examples, is also um, what can we really then ask those kind of, let's say, payers or organizations? And we we know from the regulatory side that um, this is rather not only a kind of, let's say, question and answer, right? It's really a conversation, at least what I have seen so far. I think, how does it look like when we think about such kind of payer advice? Is it also really a conversation or is it rather a kind of, 
I sent my question, I received the answer, and I need to deal with the answer, whatever it is. And especially, obviously, what could we really ask there? Is there also the opportunity, for example, asking if the price is right? So again, it depends a little bit on on the context. And I hate giving you the answer, it depends. But in the context of Europe and the UK, it really does. Because each process within each country has a different approach to to looking at the, the challenges of early access. And of course, we're thinking here around early advice in the context of formal and informal processes. Mm -hmm. So we need to also take account of the fact that there are both routes. So we can both tackle these advice processes from a formal perspective. So early advice consultations with the GBA or with NICE, for example. But there are also informal opportunities through advisory boards or well-structured expert elicitation to actually understand the requirements and needs across different countries. But if we come back to the kinds of things that you might want to be able to explore, looking at the in-target population, so who is likely to be eligible for a particular medicine, whether the outcomes that are planned to be studied in a phase three population are relevant, whether they're appropriate to allow value to be assessed in a particular country, and whether the comparator reflects standard of care. Those would be three of the perhaps key questions that I would expect to explore through early advice. Issues regarding price, I would see as out of scope, honestly, for the early advice process. This is not the intent. Here, we're looking at the evidence. We're looking at what will be required to later assess the value that a medicine or technology or innovation might offer within a system. Nick, is that in line with your experience as well? It, it, it is. It is, yes. In, in, in terms of the formal advice processes for NICE, for example, they won't advise you on the on the price. They will. They can advise you on whether it's an appropriate model structure and considerations around utilities and and so on and so forth. But in terms of pricing, no, they wouldn't. They wouldn't um, provide advice there. I think. I think to add to Esther's points, which I completely agree with, one interesting evolution at the moment as well is thinking about real world evidence as part of the um, the evidence package. So traditionally, it's been. A lot of the conversations have been around the clinical trial data, and now we're seeing much more use of, of real-world evidence in terms of um, reimbursement decision-making and, indeed, um, regulatory and marketing authorization decision-making as well. And there's still some uncertainty and, and a lack of formal frameworks, I think, around what is good practice when it comes to real-world evidence. And that's certainly something that that we see, certainly the formal HTA bodies, so NICE, CADF, for example, providing much more, much clearer advice around what you what you can and can't do and what you should and maybe shouldn't do when it comes to real-world evidence generation as well. So that's certainly something that companies can be considering when thinking about the, the evidence package as a, a, a holistic piece. Yeah. So maybe to bounce the question back to you, Stefan, from a German <laughs> perspective, obviously it's one of the more formal advice mm. processes. What's your experience been in terms of the scope of advice that you can seek from the GBA? I think it's basically in line, I think, what you have already said, maybe taking the health economics component, obviously, out. I think uh, we know that, let's say, uh, health economics is not a main driver um, in, in the German process. So I, I would rather go exactly, I think, what you said already, Esther, beforehand. I think it's really more asking the questions on the right kind of clinical trial, maybe take it broadly, program, right? I mean, how should the the the, the clinical trial look like? I mean, um, if if the randomization is not possible, I mean, which other kind of study designs might potentially still be acceptable? Um, if obviously an RCT is doable, I mean, how, how should it look like, right? I mean, which kind of um, uh, which kind of endpoint should be taken into consideration? 
um, which kind of subpopulations should be analyzed and be planned for, obviously. And for sure, I think uh, one of the, probably not even the kind of main question is clearly on the comparator. I mean, as we all know, if you have the wrong comparator, at the end of the day, payers and HDA organizations, a lot of times just simply decide uh, not having proven an added benefit because you have, you cannot show it against the kind of current standard of care in their market, right? Which is, again, coming back to the question we had early on, when you want to approach Europe, how to best do it? And finally, obviously, I mean, you said it, I mean, if we just take the the bigger countries, right? We have France and Germany and uh, still the UK, even though a different process. But I mean, we, we we probably need to take those, at least those three countries into the kind of strategic planning in order to be commercially successful. I mean, maybe we can move a bit and just for the next couple of minutes into the process. I mean, we just said it early on. I think uh, there have been a couple of changes post-Brexit in the UK. I think that might be maybe an important consideration. Um, but also, I mean, what is the pros and how does a, a an early advisory look like with UK NICE? In Germany, I mean, currently it's it's all digital. I mean, before uh, before COVID, we had face-to-face meetings. Normally it's between 60 and 90 minutes. It's very formal, right? I mean, as you said it, I mean, it's quite clear. You have the basically three to five people in front of you from the GBA. It's already aligned beforehand. It's not a discussion, right? You send the question, you're rational, and they basically come back with their kind of comment, and you can ask questions for sure, but it's more around the rational. How does it look in the UK? Maybe we should tackle this in a couple of different ways, Nick, because, of course, the process of seeking early advice in the UK has really changed, I think, post-Brexit. And the two, perhaps, examples that I would suggest we talk about are nice early advice, but then the ILAP process or the innovation licensing and access pathway. And, of course, the difference between those two is that the ILAP process is something that you need to be considered eligible for, whereas nice scientific advice is essentially open to all, depending on the of the decision problem. So do you perhaps want to talk about nice scientific advice, Nick, and then I'll perhaps touch on ILAP? Yeah, I can I can certainly pick that one up. So, so in answer to, to Stefan's question, um, or the differences between the two, it is still a virtual process um, for the for the time being. In it, but it's much more discursive than um there's much more of a discussion that than I think is um is necessarily the case with the GBA. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the overall process, um the company would would um, go to NICE and um, sort of initiate the process and, and get into the work plan. That's obviously the first point. And often that needs to be done relatively far in advance. Um, there are some priority slots available, I think, but um, they are they are few and far between. So forward planning is actually very critical for this. Otherwise, by the time you get to the point of requiring the advice, which, you know, as Esther mentioned earlier, is um, sort of end of phase two, going into registration or trials before you lock those down, where you still have the opportunity to make changes if if that's something that you feel you need to do. Once you get into the advice process itself, there's a process of putting together a briefing book. So a dossier of around about 50 pages. There's got some background to the condition, a bit around your value proposition, and then it's got your questions and the company positions on those questions. So it's not going in with open questions. It's coming in with here is our plan and giving giving the um the giving nice and the 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 team there something to react to um, as well. The meeting itself is um is often relatively informal um, in terms of the the stakeholders that they have there. 
there's a mix of technical team and health economists, clinicians, patients. So it's a really, a really sort of broad and, and helpful stakeholder mix in terms of who who is there. Um, and it's a discursive meeting. Um, there's an opportunity for the company to um to to put their case across, ask sort of questions within that. And then after that, there's a formal report um, that is developed by NICE. There's an opportunity to ask clarification questions, and that's essentially then the um you receive your final report and that's the process complete. Interesting, yeah. interesting. So I, I think I say you mentioned before an iLab. I know the kind of, uh, let's say, that there's a new process and uh, a lot of companies speaking about that. But what is the difference between, let's say, the iLab process and what Nick just described, which is probably more the kind of conservative, normal, already well-known kind of consultation process. Is that difference or is it an add-on? So it is different, but it's not mutually exclusive. I think um, that would perhaps be the first point to make. The Innovation Licensing and Access Pathway is a relatively new initiative, again, post-Brexit, which really reflects an intent across the different stakeholders in the UK system to prioritise access to those treatments which are truly innovative and that are addressing specific areas of unmet need within the context of the UK healthcare system and population. So it's a new process where companies can essentially submit to be considered for an innovation passport, the I and the P of that process, uh, relatively early in development. And in fact, uh, companies are encouraged to submit for an innovation passport as soon as they have a sufficient argument to pull forwards. That initial assessment for an innovation passport is largely taken care of by the MHRA, so the regulatory agency in the UK. But the pathway itself is then accessed by all stakeholders across the different parts of the mix. So when you progress forwards in an innovation pathway, so if you're granted an innovation passport, then NICE will be involved, SMC will be involved, All Wales Medicine Strategy Group might be involved, NHS England might be involved in terms of the delivery of care alongside the regulators. So the concept behind it and what I found really um, I think groundbreaking in, in the approach is that it brings all the different stakeholders, including patient representatives and advocates, around one table to think through the future access challenges that a particular medicine might have and to explore ways in which the data can be enriched, that real world evidence can be incorporated and that different perspectives can be gained on a development package to ensure the best possible evidence package at the point of launch and rapid access for patients in the UK. So my early experiences of this process have been really positive and it feels very collaborative, very much like joint problem solving, recognising that there are different lenses that we can cast on a development programme and there are intrinsic difficulties in meeting the needs of different stakeholders and different jurisdictions. So this process, I think, is a really positive move on behalf of the UK to look at how to how to encourage access to the right medicines in the right way with the right evidence. That that sounds really exciting. I mean, it, it, it's probably really a more a kind of um, um, on top opportunity, right? Besides, let's say, the kind of standard consultation opportunity, which obviously still exists. I mean, we've now spoken a bit about, let's say, Germany, which is one country, obviously, and then we have UK. I mean, I, you know, I can, let's say, feel, and we have had already a project where we have as well done it in that way, that I think... Um, some of the questions and some of the positions might be overlapping, not exactly always, right? I mean, endpoints might maybe, I would say, 
80%, sometimes 90% overlapping in terms of acceptance. Um, I think uh, the the underlying evidence base, I think RCT is still the gold standard, even though that I, from outside, I think UK NICE is maybe a bit more flexible and sometimes a bit more pragmatic in terms of acceptance of other kind of evidence. I think, Nick, Nick you have already mentioned real world evidence, which I think, um, let's say we are currently discussing it in Germany, but uh, be, beyond, let's say, 18 Ps, I would not see really um, a big favor to take that as well into consideration in general, right? Um, still, we have just two countries, right? I mean, two out of 20 plus countries in Europe, when we say uh, we go beyond EU, um, and we all know that um, in a couple of years, the EU joint HA process will uh, will as well be put into place. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, especially maybe when you ha might have now a company, again, coming back to my example beforehand, US company, and they maybe plan a launch in 2025 or 2026. Would you still say, I would rather go into the individual countries, pick some of those out there, have a discussion, get the feedback, put it into my clinic trial program, or would you rather say, you know what, I start directly on a European level? I think it's really asset dependent, honestly, Stefan. Um, and to your point, while you, you Netta have not yet fully implemented pan-European HDA, there is already a joint advice process with the joint scientific consultations that can be accessed at a pan-Europe level. I think the challenge with those is they're relatively few and far between. So actually getting access into that process is not straightforward and companies and asset programs need to meet a certain level of criteria in order to be considered. So I would suggest that for companies that are looking ex-US at advice strategies, it's very much about understanding the question and establishing the mosaic of options and then navigating the path that might, makes most sense. And in my experience, that's likely to be a combination of formal and informal processes. Mm. So it might include joint scientific advice at a European level for the right kind of programme. For others, it might be about picking perhaps Germany, France, the UK for formal engagement and supplementing that with interviews and expert consultation informally across a wider range of countries. I think the challenge with advice is you need to be able to act on it. And if you uh, go too broad in terms of gathering perspective that can be varied and different through formal processes, reconciling that into what's often a single programme can be immensely difficult. So it's a case of picking the priority countries, the priority questions, working out the matters of substance versus the matters of style and understanding how that can be integrated into a single development programme. Yeah, I think that's a, that's probably a good kind of summary, even though that it's probably not making life so much easier, right? If I'm, let's say, a company, I mean, I'm, you know, I still have that kind of number in mind, right? 50 different, uh, let's say, opportunities, uh, if you see it positively. So, Nick, what are your thoughts, basically? How could a company really approach those 50 options? I mean, as I just said, you know, you need to pick, you need to prioritize, but how would you do that? I mean, what, what is your recommendation to companies? So it's broadly similar to what I suggested. So I, I would always I would always take a look at the um the joint European process. Um that, that should certainly be a consideration. But as Esther said, there are limited slots and, and those slots only open up at certain points in the year. And mm. the timing of getting advice, you know, you, you need to do it when you're in a certain part of the process of of putting together your evidence package and the timings don't always work out. We do see pretty frequently UK, GBA, um, Germany, sorry, and France um, as a 
as as three markets where you can get good and different information from those um, from those three markets. Essentially, because you know, a, a, as we know, they are set up to assess drugs um, or new therapies in a, in a different way, and therefore the questions that you can ask are a little bit different between those three. I think, in honestly, we know that there is going to be overlap um, between them. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a a, a bad thing. Um, as you're as you're getting the advice, but certainly we see fairly commonly Germany, France, and the UK, and they give you, in honesty, a lot of the information that you will need to be able to develop that evidence generation plan. I think in terms of other considerations, and um, we spoke earlier about stakeholders as well. I think that's certainly something to be thinking about in terms of the. Um, in terms of the advice processes. So there are some earlier, early advice processes and some later early advice processes, if, if that makes sense. Um, and, and I think what I would suggest that the companies don't do is just do um, sort of three early scientific advice processes with the UK, Germany and France, and then leave it at that. You need to have an ongoing an ongoing conversation, whether that's informal advice in terms of advisory boards or there, you know, even within the even within the UK, there are other routes for more formal early advice offers for market access, for example. Esther's already mentioned the, the ILAP and the your target development profile that you can do. And there are similar options in other in other countries as well. But I would say UK, France and Germany is a is a very good starting point. Always consider the the joint EU process and then build up an approach essentially um, based on the information that you need in the, and the stakeholders that you would like to engage with. Got you, got you. Yeah, I, I, I think that makes sense. I think that's probably also consistent um, with what we have seen in the last couple of years. Um, so we have, let's say, discussed a bit about prioritization, a bit of the process. Um, Esther, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago that probably the best time to start with such a kind of consultation or engagement is probably around let's say the um the conversion let's say from phase two into a phase three program if we think about a a a drug development program but if i'm again a unexperienced uh company out of the us what does that really mean because obviously i need to prepare the package to be submitted to the different authorities i probably need to book as well a meeting in advance right i mean in germany for example we have now a waiting time of somewhere around six to seven months until you actually have the meeting right so something as well keeping in mind what is your advice on that when should companies really start not only thinking but actually really um starting with the process so i think here we can look at the learnings that companies have had in terms of regulatory advice and and often this is specified in terms of the pathway really early in development so right back as we're going into the clinic we're thinking about what we're going to be gathering at different points over the development journey and we can take the same approach when we think about HTA advice so it's specifying in that clinical development plan what are the key questions that we're likely to have what are the right junctures for actually seeking advice and what should that advice look like both in terms of stakeholder process and countries to be engaged and by really laying this out right at the beginning of a clinical development plan companies can then make sure that they're ready and that they have the right support and engagement of specialist groups like ours to make Make sure that they can tackle those questions in the right way. 
I think the challenges come when it's, um, for want of a better expression, an afterthought, when we're about to lock the phase three and suddenly we need to get advice. And that, I think, is really difficult, Mm. certainly through formal processes. It's much better to have this pre-planned and where possible to be thinking about it right from the in-clinic stage so that we're recognising that this is going to be an iterative pathway and that collecting the right advice first means knowing the right questions um, and then also looking at the right time to enable change to be made in a clear and consistent and globally aligned way. Because again, let's not be under any illusion, if you've got very different advice from the FDA, for example, than from one of the UK HTA bodies or the German process, then clearly there are difficult trade-off decisions to be made uh, and they're going to be pragmatically favouring the larger market opportunity. But then we need to get Uh, creative and think about, for example, in a scenario where the comparator is very distinct and different, what can we do instead? How could an indirect treatment comparison be pre-planned to be accessible to as many countries as possible? And what does that work need to look like and when should it begin? And how does that govern the way perhaps that data is collected through phase two and phase three to enable those indirect methods to be used most effectively? So again, It's about knowing the question, the pathway and the countries that you need to be able to prioritize. Yeah, that's uh, that's making again a lot of sense. Um, So so the last stack, probably. And um, I mean, uh, the three of us are basically heading and have founded different consultancies. So we are helping as well, obviously, industry in that process and uh, in a couple of other things as well. But I mean, how would such a kind of engagement look like? And obviously, let's see being a bit more free, obviously, if companies want to have a choice beyond maybe the three of us, I mean, how how should they basically choose a vendor for such an endeavor, not only maybe for one country, but especially if they would think about, as we said it now, probably for three plus X countries or three plus that you joined, HC, what should be the criteria to choose up? Nick, and any thoughts on that? For me, the... The, the bones of any really good advice process is asking the right questions and coming up with good company positions to be able to, to test your assumptions. And I think to do that, you need an agency that understands that individual um, HTA system, that understands that three, four years down the line, when you get in front of the NICE committee or the GBA, that... Um, you know that you understand what those those considerations and those questions are going to be so for me that's one of the critical things is to have enough understanding on an in country basis of what what are what are the issues going to be 3 or 4 years down the line looking at this evidence package and then to help and to challenge and to push and probe the company um in terms of coming up with those positions because the 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 strengths of the of the advice that you get are based on the quality of the questions that you submit and if you have an an agency or a vendor that that sits there and 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 just writes i think you don't get as good a result um, as you do if you have an agency that challenges you and questions you and and probes you in the right areas to make sure that you're you're asking the right questions and that you're um and that you're putting together a strong company position is there anything to add there I would echo that very strongly. I think looking back at my industry side experience of running these types of processes, as well as the broader kind of European and global work that we do now within Decisive, 
The best mechanism that I find is working closely with local experts, whether that's local experts through informal advice or local expert companies, such as the two that the two of you represent, to make sure that we're able to deeply understand the context, Mm. the relevance of the questions, the past analogues and precedents that we can learn from around a process in shaping the way that we approach early advice conversations. So my personal experience, um, and I say this without uh, being overly connected, Uh, in terms of our our current ways of working. But my previous experience is that it is highly asset dependent. There are some cases where having a really globalised position and programme makes huge sense. But where we're dealing with complexity, particularly, and where we're dealing with international variability in terms of treatment patterns or guidelines or evidence synthesis considerations, then having that local deep insight can make all the difference. So consistently gather the questions, have a consistent consistent global plan, but be ready to engage with a mosaic of local vendors who can actually bring the local insight and specialist perspective. Um, And certainly that's what I I pride uh, us on bringing to the table in the way that the three of us work together, for example. I I think what else to add here, right? I think that was a great conclusion. Thank you for the discussion. It was a big fun and uh, looking forward to maybe as well further episodes. Thanks Thanks so much, Stefan. So great discussion today. And um, as you have heard now in the last couple of minutes, it is important to get ready early on a kind of idea in which countries you as a company want to focus on, especially if you want to maybe have a European approach. I think it's always driven by the business decisions for sure, but sometimes also obviously a bit more on the political aspect. Just think about the important KOLs you might have and the KOLs you want to maybe involve. That is where and why not always it is the German, French and the UK approach, but also think about other countries like Italy, Spain, some of the Nordics and other countries as well. In any way, after that has been decided on, keep thinking which kind of approach in terms of payer engagement is also appropriate for your company and for the ingredient you want to discuss. And finally, after that was also decided on, then really take a deep dive and think about the important questions and also how to raise those questions with those organizations if you want to go a formal um, engagement process. Questions need to be raised in the right way. Positions need to be put into the right way. And then for sure, you need to choose the right kind of process, which what we have heard is 50 different engagement processes just across the globe and a good number of that also happening in Europe. That was an episode of MAP, the market access podcast provided by Mars Market Access and Pricing Strategy, which is your healthcare consultancy in the German-speaking markets. MAP is available every second week with a new episode, so watch out. And in case you might have questions, contact me directly and or visit our website on www.marketaccess-pricingstrategy.de.